truth or dare <clears throat> is not a game the church should play. Faithful or faithless, holy or hellion, pure or defiled, take your pick. <clears throat> you might say Thyatira tried to have it both ways. Loving and committed servants on the one hand and on the other, passively permitting one sinful pied piper to lead the faithful away. Jezebel had to go. Time and distance make that seem so obvious. But is there ever a Jezebel in our own house, in our own heart, a part of us pulling away from the Lord? When we wrestle with right and wrong, is it Jezebel whispering in our ear? Stand strong, says the Bible. Do God's work until the end. And the morning star waits to greet those who conquer with crowns. The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation, beginning with verse 13 through the end of the chapter in verse 29. <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious, and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them like an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What did we do before GPS? Uh, for me, it was a whole stack of Thomas guides sitting next to me in the 
in the next seat of the car. But uh, last night, uh, got a particular lesson in how important uh, GPS can be. Jordan has been after us for weeks to try this quicker route to his house. We always go out Van Buren, get on the 60, jump on the 15, go up the summit. No, no, no. Take the 215 to the 210 and get off at Citrus and we're right there. Well, maybe. (laughs) But if it hadn't been for GPS last night, we'd still be driving around North Fontana, I'm pretty sure. We, we live in a world where there are conflicting directions. Program your GPS to my son's house and you'll get two different routes, at least. There was the time that I was driving in Pennsylvania and in Pennsylvania there are no roads at right angles. It's apparently against the law in the Commonwealth <laughs> of Pennsylvania for any road to actually intersect. They, they go off in different angles and I, make this turn, and I'm not sure it's the right one, and just in the dear little voice on my GPS, Esmeralda, as I call her, says, recalculating route. <laughs> no! We live in a world where we get conflicting directions. Where I grew up, it was pretty simple. Go down three section roads, to the farm with the old red outbuilding and turn left there. Well, that's pretty easy. If you can count the three, you can get anywhere in Oklahoma. <laughs> but California and Pennsylvania are different because there's a world of conflicting directions. The church in Thyatira was a place that was experiencing conflicting directions. Jesus' letter to the church at Thyatira is the hardest, I think, of the seven letters to really decipher. For one, uh, Jesus is really letting the apocalyptic imagery blossom. He's, He's sort of held back in the first few letters. Now, it's, it's full on. There's, there's apocalyptic imagery everywhere in this letter. And we all know that the problem with apocalyptic imagery is that, well, I think I know what it means, but this commentator may not. <laughs> and and we live in that world of what? What are we talking about here? Well, part of what we need to do is understand Thyatira as a community. It was the Cleveland of the cities that... Jesus wrote to through John in Revelation. It was an industrial town. It was known for its bronze and iron foundries. It had factory workers. It was full of guilds. Uh, That's first century speak for labor unions. This was a muscular, unionized workforce that went to work every day with lunch pails, put in a hard day's work, and in the evening wanted to party with whatever energy they had left, and did so robustly. And it is to this community, this working class gathering of Christians, that Jesus uses some of the most interesting imagery 
that shows up in these seven letters. He praises the city of Thyatira, first of all, for strengthening their discipleship in this city. This is not a place where it's easy to be a disciple of Jesus, if any place is. But the, 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 the world the Thyatirans inhabited of daily, grinding work that was dangerous and hot and messy uh, left Jesus impressed that they would take the time to build their discipleship. Christians in the first century tended not to just gather on Sunday. They tended to gather daily. Acts 2, they gathered in the temple daily. No doubt there were Christians who probably gathered in the guild halls of Thyatira every morning before shift to pray together, to worship together, to to study God's Word together. And Jesus praises the church for its capacity to grow in discipleship. And then he launches into a criticism, verses 20 to 25. And it's maybe the most misunderstood criticism of the seven letters. It's the Jezebel problem. Now, we have done a brilliant job in the West, and particularly in the American church, in interpreting the Jezebel problem like a bunch of misogynists. Uh, we've, we've decided that, that Thyatira had a woman problem. They had some sexy gal up there teaching every Sunday, and of course, this is biblical proof that women shouldn't teach. <laughs> And, and that if they do, bad things will happen. Baloney is the most polite term I can come up with. I can think of another, but I won't go there. That is not the point here. This is apocalyptic imagery. Jezebel's problem was not that she looked like Betty Davis in the 1938 movie. Jezebel's problem was that she and Ahab led Israel astray. They led them into idolatry. And the only reason Jezebel comes first in that is that the, the, the compiler of Kings recounts the story of Jezebel sending the message after the victory at Mount Carmel to Elijah that you're going to die in 24 hours. It wasn't Ahab who sent it. It was Jezebel who sent it. So she gets top billing. The point here is not that there's a woman teaching heresy in Revelation. The point is that the church is allowing itself to be steered away by a different set of directions. The point is that the church is, is losing its sense of focus. It's playing around. And so the, the challenge that Jesus gives the church is to stop playing around, to stop the problem of moral and spiritual compromise in the church. That, that playing around got expressed 
in, in two ways in this passage. It got expressed as, uh, in verse 20 as sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, Paul already, 30 years before this, this letter was written, Paul had already declared a don't ask, don't tell policy around food sacrifice to idols. The Jerusalem conference made a big deal about it at the beginning of Paul's ministry. And then by the time 1 Corinthians gets written, Paul says, yeah, about food sacrifice to idols, don't worry about it. Not that important. Well, the Thyatirans had made it important. They had decided to, that, that, well, we want to be a church known for eating food sacrificed idols because we're tolerant and we're, and, 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 and we embrace all kinds of views in our midst. And Jesus is saying, look, Jezebel missed the point of what it meant to follow Yahweh. And she instead wanted to follow Baal. And, and kind of do whatever. And that's what's going on here with this food sacrifice to idols stuff. And they're being told that anything goes with your sexual behavior. And what Jesus says is, you've got to stop playing around. in first century Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, worship often took place at temples that involved, because worship was often associated with the cycle of the calendar and fertility, it also involved temple prostitution. So worship and sexuality often collided in the first century And so, the Thyatirans are being challenged to think carefully about what they do in worship and how they worship. That intimacy and community doesn't lead to immorality. It leads to fidelity. And it leads to to a concrete kind of ethic. And so Jesus is not being misogynistic and saying, don't let women teach, that's the answer. That's just dumb. Holy Spirit speaks to everybody regardless of gender, okay? What Jesus is saying is, stop playing around in worship. Stop playing around in your ethics. Take worship seriously. Take, it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. Stop making a big deal about it. Stop making a point about it. Just be faithful to me. Be faithful to each other. Jesus is calling for a radical fidelity, not for a male-only theology club. The Jezebel problem is a lack of fidelity, not a gender issue. And so Jesus then calls the church at Thyatira to to take the iron scepter and break the pottery of compromise. To to smash it from their midst. And this is is imagery we're not comfortable with as modern-day, postmodern Westerners who, you know, we want everybody to we want everybody to like us. And we want to be liked. 
And so taking iron scepters and smashing, that, that sounds mean and violent and, ooh. But Jesus is, again, challenging the church. Take responsibility. Own up to what it means to be a disciple. And if you do, you receive the direction you need, the morning star, that, that point in the celestial firmament by which you can navigate. We want to know what Jesus wants us to do. We begin by examining our lives and asking ourselves, are we doing what Jesus wants us to do? Are we following Him? The apocalyptic imagery of Thyatira can be challenging and confusing. But it gives us insight into how to follow Jesus in what we've inherited, a re-paganized culture where we need new instruments. It's, it's interesting that the Navy just posted an article on a on a on one of their websites that that said that they're training students at the US Naval Academy now in using the sextant again to navigate. They'd been they'd been using computers, right? Well what can happen to a computer? Well you can hack it. And if your enemy hacks your navigational computer, all of a sudden you might be going the wrong way, like into a minefield or running into another boat of your Navy's colors. So they're now going back and training every student at the Naval Academy in how to use old-fashioned navigational tools like a sextant to fix their position on the water. How do we follow Jesus in a culture that's been hacked? In a, in a re-paganized society, in a society where Christendom no longer has any power. How do we follow Jesus? Well, the Thyatiran church struggled with that very issue in their context. And I think points us to four possibilities for how we follow Jesus uh, in, in our re-paganized culture. First of all, we need a new imagination. The Thyatirans needed a new imagination. Jezebel, whoever he or she was, didn't have all the answers. They needed a new imagination. And we need to welcome the possibility that we have been challenged to be Constantine's pallbearers. Constantine, the one who, who wrote the initial edict that said, yeah, Christianity after 300 years, not so bad after all, Will. Let's not persecute Christians anymore. In fact, we're going to make it the state religion. Everybody gets to be a Christian now. Well, that was, was a very nice and generous thing Constantine did. It also warped most of the gospel for the next 1,500 years. But now we've come to an end of that, and it falls to us, the church of the 21st century, to have the honor of taking Constantine's coffin and laying him to rest once and for all. Because his... Act of 325 AD no longer has any power in our culture. Christendom is dead. And we are no longer 
a Christian majority, if we ever were, if we ever were, we certainly aren't anymore. We are instead a vast spread out minority. And I think that image is a powerful one for us to think about. What does it mean for us, Jesus followers, to think of ourselves as a vast minority? How do we, how do we, how do we live as a minority who once was a majority? How do we face the world? How do we talk about the power and status we once had and now no longer have? How do we, how do we live with those minorities that in fact we have used our theology to persecute? To say, hmm, well, you're kind of savage. You need to be Christianized. You need to be made like us. Only now us isn't everybody anymore. So what are we going to do? How are we going to live with the legacy of Christendom? We need a new imagination. A new way of thinking about how to be the church. How to follow Jesus. How to live faithfully. And we won't get it right all the time. The thing about our generation and the next one is that we're going to bumble and stumble our way through it. It's going to take three generations for us in this country to get to a place where the church is comfortable with where God is calling it to be. So if you were hoping that Christianity is going to be smooth sailing for the rest of your life until you die and go to heaven... No, it's not the way it's going to work. It's going to be confusing and frustrating. And we're going to bumble and we're going to fumble. And Jesus is going to keep saying, follow me. I'm the North Star. Just get up and follow me. It'll be okay. We aren't going to get it perfect. Because only Jesus is perfect. But we need that new imagination understanding that the church's call isn't to get it all figured out, but to keep navigating towards Him. That leads to the second point. We need a new navigation. We need to understand who and what this North Star, this morning star is that, that we are called to follow. We have often recast Jesus as the uh, emitter of platitude for society. Oh, let's be nice to each other. Jesus really doesn't say let's be nice to each other in the Gospels. I mean, I suppose we could read into some of the things he says as being nice is okay, but that's really not Jesus' point. We think of Jesus as, well, yeah, it's, it's a good American. Embraces our values. He's on our side. No. Probably not. Jesus was a member of a society that had been overrun and lived in the shadow of an empire. He wasn't like us. And a different point of view altogether. We need to figure out 
how to witness to the Jesus who is a Savior and a teacher, a friend and Lord. But as Savior, He has things to teach us about how to live. It isn't just about going to heaven because we prayed the right prayer before we died. And it isn't just about stopping doing naughty things. It is about acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. But it isn't just Jesus as some distant Lord ready to hurl lightning bolts at us when we screw up. It's about the Jesus who is our friend. We need a bigger Jesus. We need a bigger Jesus than the one we've had. And we need to witness to that Jesus not out of a triumphal sense of, I, well, I found it and you can have it too. But we need to capture what David Bosch and missiologists like him have called witness in bold humility. Not cowering in the corner saying, Jesus loves me, don't hurt me. But standing up and saying, Christ is Lord. Proclaiming Christ the Lord is risen today. Proclaiming that His Lordship means I can live in confidence. I can steer with the morning star in the midst of all the other stuff in my life. We need a a new navigation. A bigger Jesus. We need a new mission. We need to shape our personal and congregational lives around asking what Jesus wants us to do question on our armband shouldn't be what would Jesus do? The question on our armbands is what, what's Jesus already told us to do? What does Jesus want us to do? Asking the question what would Jesus do is a little bit of an exercise in copping out. Because Jesus didn't live in 21st century North America. We do. Question is, what has Jesus, what has he already told us to do? Hmm. Love one another. Love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us. Wash each other's feet. Serve one another. Jesus already told us. 95% of what we need to know to function in the world. I think he'll let us guess at maybe the other 5%. I don't know. I could be wrong. But it seems to me we should work on the 95% he's already told us about. So shaping our lives around this new mission of asking what Jesus already wants us to do and aligning ourselves with that. Again, it's a the question of navigation, of getting in alignment with the morning star. And then finally, uh, we need a new vessel. We need to be the church that prioritizes the quest for long-term neighborhood transformation over short-term program growth. We, uh, we have created, especially at the end of the 20th century, a a way of doing church that says, well, y'all come. You can be our family. We've got great programs for everybody. 
and we can be really entertaining. But the vessel we're going to need in the 21st century, the vessel the Thyatirans needed, is a vessel that's ready to be a small boat in a big sea. A vessel that's ready to sail in rough waters. A vessel that's ready to transform us from land lovers into sailors. A church that prioritizes the long term over the short term. That prioritizes those who aren't here yet over those who are already in the door. How are we the church for others? We want to be a church that follows Jesus. We have to answer that question. And so the Thyatirans add to the marks of a faithful church. If, if Ephesus was about love in the face of conflicting ideas, and Smyrna was about tenacity in the face of conflicting allegiances, and Pergamum was about nonconformity in the face of conflicting engagements, then Thyatira is about navigating in the face of conflicting directions by focusing on the morning star, on Jesus. We, the church, me as a pastor, we, we love to chase the latest bright and shiny object. Man, crammed into my email inbox every day is a dozen bright and shiny ideas from some noted author and speaker. And I'll read some of those and go, yeah, there it is. The golden ticket. The way in which we can transform our church into a great big... No, that's not what we want to do. We want to follow Jesus. We just want to follow Jesus. So this morning, some questions to think about. How do we, how do we play around and act as less than the church and act as less than the people Jesus invites us to be? Thyatirans had a particular way of playing around. How do we do that? How do we live well in the tension between compromise and welcoming different points of view? Because that's part of the challenge of being a church in a postmodern society. There's compromise. There's giving up our essential commitment to follow the morning star. And there's welcoming different points of view. Understanding that people might read their sextants differently. And how do we come to an understanding together? What tools do we need to navigate together in following Christ in the strange new world of post-Christendom? What, what are the tools that we need? Sextants and compasses and or maybe we just trust our GPS until Esmeralda says, recalculating route, and we slam on the brakes. What does it take for us to reimagine the church 
is a long-term project. It's hard for me as a pastor to think 50 days ahead in the church calendar. Sometimes it's hard to think five days ahead in the church calendar. I think Jesus is calling us to think 50 years ahead. 500 years ahead. What's it going to be like to follow Christ then? How do we get ready for that now? One more thing. Stuart Murray Williams, my good friend from England, has written a new book entitled, not surprisingly, uh, A Vast Minority. And it's published by Potter Noster, and I would recommend you get a copy. There, shameless plug. Um, in his book, he quotes another friend of mine uh, in Seattle, Dwight Friesen, who says this, The church within post-Christendom contexts has just begun to notice that it has few, if any, secular teammates committed to forming Christian missional identity, which means that the church must reimagine how to fulfill its God-given mission to form holistic Christian identity without the aid of public institutions. Do not hear me suggesting that we must return to Christendom. We must not, even if we could. For life in the way of Christ cannot be legislated, Today, the weight of Christian missional formation rests squarely on the shoulders of the local church. Folks, if you thought there was some seminary or campground or college or program or curriculum or binder on the shelf for $49.95, that if we just linked in with them, all would be well, forget it. We are it. It's up to us. How will we together navigate toward the morning star? That's the challenge for us. That's what the church at Thyatira got and then began to back off of because it was scary. And it challenged them. And it will scare us. And it will challenge us. And we will look for easier ways but the good news is Jesus is the morning star. Constant and faithful. What do you think this morning? How, how do we become a people who play around less and navigate towards Jesus more? What tools do we need and how do we live in the tension of the call to compromise and the welcoming of different viewpoints. Let's just take a few minutes and talk back to each other. What are, what are you thinking this morning? <laughs>